Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Lisa Miller is the New York Times bestselling author of The Spiritual Child. She's a professor in the clinical psychology program at Columbia University's Teachers College and the founder and director of the Spirituality Mind Body Institute, the first Ivy League graduate program in spirituality and psychology. And for over a decade, she's held joint appointments in the Department of Psychiatry at Columbia University Medical School. Her groundbreaking research has been published in more than 100 empirical peer-reviewed articles in leading journals. And today, we're going to chat about her latest must-read book titled The Awakened Brain, The New Science of Spirituality and Our Quest for an Inspired Life which just might be my favorite book of 2021. And this interview is probably my favorite of 2021 as well. So I am beyond excited for all of you to meet Dr. Lisa Miller. Lisa, welcome. Jason, thank you so much for having me. It's wonderful to join you. It is such an honor. I love, love, loved your book, The Awakened Brain, The New Science of Spirituality and Our Quest for an Inspired Life. You delivered on the promise. It's a great title and you delivered. Jason, thank you. Can you start by walking us through the MRI findings that led you to writing this book? We had been searching for a very long time up at Columbia University Medical School for protective factors against one of the most debilitating forms of illness, actually, in the whole world, which is clinical depression. Believe it or not, depression is something like the third or fourth leading cause of other illnesses, early death, and obviously even suicidality in the world. Depression is really takes from us. So we had looked at childhood parenting. We had looked at the conditions, you know, the socioeconomic conditions. We had looked at a broad host of the usual factors that people look at when they try to understand how can we gird people against the deep suffering in depression. And of all of the factors using the lens of epidemiology, looking, if you will, out the airplane window from the 10,000 foot view on large groups of people. It turned out that far and away, the most profoundly protective factor against depression is personal spiritual life. And that's true whether or not someone is religious, they could be spiritual and religious or spiritual and not religious. And it's true no matter what denomination they may be, Catholic, Hindu, Jewish, Muslim, whatever the case, personal spirituality was 80% protective against the lifetime course of major depression. So given this extraordinarily profound change in our lives associated with spirituality and its extraordinary girding against really this form of suffering that can dog people for years, we thought, well, shouldn't there be some sort of, if you will, neurodocking station or region or circuit in the brain that's associated both with spirituality and its benefits against depression. So we set to work and we drew as a team up at Columbia Presbyterian on all of the work that had been done to date, both on depression and the tiny little bit that had been done on spirituality. 
and searching for neurocorrelates, this neurodocking station, if you will. A team just a few years before us had identified broad and pervasive regions of cortical thinning. The cortex is processing power, and they had found not strength through thickness, but thinning in people with recurrent depression, specifically in regions of perception, reflection, and orientation. So we thought, well, that's not a bad place to start. Let's look there. And similarly, another team, in science you like if different teams find things because you're sure it's not just the sway of one lab. Another team in another city had identified uh, regions with some overlap in another study of perception and reflection that were not, they hadn't looked at cortical thickening or, or anything, but that seemed to be active in people with a strong spiritual life. So we put it all together. We looked through the MRI at people who had suffered time and time again with depression. And those people who had been at risk based on parent genetics, been at risk based on, if you will, the rain cloud of depression over their head. So they lived with people who were depressed. They had tough situations in lives. And then we looked at the very same group of people who, despite all these risks and despite areas in their lives where things were not going well at all, seemed somehow to recover with a strong personal spiritual life from setbacks, from disappointments, and did not have the lifetime course of major depression. And when we looked at these two groups together in the scanner, what we saw was that in people who had decided day in and day out by choice to live with, if you will, a spiritual lead foot, they prayed, they meditated. When life took away something, they said, well, there's a path for me. I know God walks with me. I know that I am supported. Life itself is holding. People who issued by choice in their heart a spiritual response to suffering showed entirely different brains. Indeed, they showed not thinning, but thickening across the regions of perception and reflection, the parietal, precuneus, and occipital. They, for having built the muscle, if you will, built cortical thickness across these regions, were neuroprotected against what otherwise might have been viewed as a fait accompli, the genetic and environmental loading for a life of suffering, recurrent major depression. Wow. So you provided some examples of what spirituality looks like, but I want to go a little bit deeper there. Is it praying daily? Is it praying weekly? Is it meditating? Is it going to a religious service at like, in terms of like frequency type of practice in your research? Like, are they all created equal? Is there a minimum threshold? Like how do, how do you think about spirituality or is it more of a mindset when life gives me a uh, lemon lemons, I make lemonade. It's such a rich question you raise. And here's how science has something to share. Scientists of course, cannot define spirituality all told, but we can identify, and this is our strength as a field, threads within lived human spiritual life that have enormous impact on the rest of our lives, such as being preventative against depression. And the two threads within lived human spiritual life, which carry enormous impact, really are absolutely game-changing in the course of a human life, are the capacity for transcendent awareness, and in particular, a transcendent relationship. Some people may say, 
I walk with Jesus. Some people may say, I feel close to God. Some people may say, I feel part of the oneness of all life. Irrespective of whether this felt transcendent relationship exists within a faith tradition or without, the capacity to feel loved, held, and connected, to feel that spirit in and through life is the first of the two major dimensions of spirituality that change the rest of our life. The second, and this is, I think, something that speaks deeply to people in in the community that you so beautifully lead forward, is that our transcendent awareness, our capacity to connect with the deeper nature of life can be shared, whether it is with the fellow listeners on your podcast or the sangha, the minion, the fellowship, the capacity to see into one another as souls on earth, relationships as spiritual events. This goes hand in hand with the first. So we have a transcendent seat of awareness and that a transcendent awareness might be shared, love of neighbor. It turns out that this very powerful dimension of human lived spirituality is innate. It is in our birthright. We are all born with this capacity to see into the deeper nature of life. But the muscle has been left to atrophy in the great majority of people in our country. Why? It is the tragedy that while this deep gift is given to every one of us, it is innate. It is one-third innate, and it is two-thirds environmentally formed. We know this through the lens of twin studies. With adult development, with biological puberty, not just age, but physically coming of age, there is a surge, a hunger of the heart to connect to God, to feel deep love. And there's a nagging of the head. What is my meaning? What is my purpose? Actually, what is the purpose, the meaning in life itself? We are hardwired every time we physically start to look different to have spiritual growth as well. All other cultures through time and space have seen this. And we have in our faith traditions, bar and bat mitzvah, the anipi, the sweat lodge confirmation. But center field, mainstream 20th century education and culture has left the spiritual core out of the formula. And we have disintegrated the hub from the wheel. We have a donut-sized hole in our heart and in our being. And we can put it back, two-thirds environmentally cultivated this is our choice. So if we all have the capacity to be spiritual, and, and I love your reference that flexing those spiritual muscles, but we need to do that because we're experiencing some atrophy. H how do we go about flexing those muscles? What does that look like in our day-to-day -day life where someone listening can say, you know what, this is, I, I, you're right. What, what Lisa's saying is resonating. I'm going to pick up your book and I, I want to get going. I, I want to, I, I miss my spiritual muscles that I maybe haven't I miss going to that gym. It's been quite a while That's and right. I need it. That's right. I love your metaphor because I work extensively with the Pentagon. Pentagon gets a slice of American pie. They get the same folks that we get at Columbia or anywhere else, right? And there's epidemic rates of suffering and epidemic loss of the spiritual core. Right? So the army says, just as we need physical fitness for the physical core, so too we need spiritual fitness for the physical core. It's a choice. It's a choice. So what do we do? Well, certainly prayer above all else opens up our direct relationship with God, Hashem, the universe, the loving guiding spirit in and through life. Prayer helps us to reopen our eyes and see into life more deeply. Meditation. 
walks in nature that don't just sort of soak in the beauty, but view and open up our sense of being in deep relationship with nature. That the tree somehow is saying, turn left, that there's a duck and a baby and that their relationship is very much like a father or a mother and their child, right? This sense of unit of awareness that comes when we're in nature. Experiences that allow us to toggle between, if you will, being a point in a wave. So just as we are individuals and we are unique, we are a point, right? You have your zipped up bio body suit and I have my zipped up bio body suit and you may be in New York and I might be in California, but wherever we are and whatever we look like as distinct points, we are at the same time a wave. In our deep awareness, we can access with clarity that there is a unitive field of life, a common seat of human experience, one heart. This unitive family of life allows us to be much closer to one another in fellowship, again, or the Sangha. It allows us to be close to people with whom we ardently disagree or with whom we've in, for, towards whom we've inherited from our culture or ancestry bias, right? There's nothing to supersede the limits of being a point than our deep awareness, our awakened awareness that we are one field of life. So whether it's prayer or meditation or a walk in nature or some form of transformative music, transportative poetry, we know when we have gotten out of the narrow material awareness, the striving of what I call achieving awareness, and we've hit the bedrock of the unit of reality, what I call our perception through awakened awareness. Powerful. So as a parent, there is a lot in the book that resonated as you, you spend time talking about children and, and teens and depression and anxiety. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read one section that just blew me away. Quote, I discovered something striking. When the mother and child were both high in spirituality, the child was 80% protected against depression compared with mothers and children who were not concordant for spirituality or mothers and children who were not high in spirituality. In other words, a child was five times less likely to be depressed when spiritual life was shared with a mother. Well, as a dad, I'm a little bit upset, but like, I get it. But wow. Well, I, that is perhaps one of the most important findings in science. It, it's so blaringly powerful. It's almost blinded, right? So it is not by picking up a book when we're 20 or 25 that we realize our innate birthright of spiritual awareness. We don't awaken because suddenly we decide we're going to pick our tradition or pick our path. We have a neurosensitivity, if you will. We are highly valuable. There's a developmental window in childhood and adolescence through which our innate spirituality takes form. If you will, the highways are paved. There's myelination between regions and within regions of the brain. The greatest force in shaping the spiritual brain, if you will, our awakened awareness, is the embodiment of spiritual life of our parents. It could be our mother or father, or it could be our grandmother in some cases. May, may I share a story, actually, that I think? Of course. Shares it. So right around the time that I was struggling with this, trying to look inductively into the data, trying to see the patterns through which young people were protected against a life of, of suffering and depression, 
I was working and this was before I was a parent. So I like to say BC before kids. And it was, I'll confess, it was a Sunday. I was waiting on the platform of the one train to Broadway. And it was hot. It was an August day. And the first train comes and we know this experience. It rattles right through, bypasses me, no room. Second train comes, doesn't stop. I'm thinking, wow, it is hot. It is August and there are no trains. Finally, one comes, stops. It's packed, of course. And everyone is right up on top of each other, arms and faces and arms and faces. And one car is open. So I think, fabulous. I hop on and quickly it becomes apparent that this one car is largely empty because all of the people have squished down on the far, far end to avoid a very frustrated and increasingly ignored, increasingly disavowed, increasingly aggravated homeless man. And he gets more and more frustrated as he's more and more ignored. So the door opens on 86th Street and he turns to me and he says, hey, you want to sit with me? The door opens on 96th Street and he says it to the next passenger. Hey, you want to sit with me? And as people ignore him more and more, he starts getting so aggravated. He, hey, do you want some of my lunch? And he starts tossing his lunch around the car. And this only exacerbates the fear people feel the abandonment he must feel and the total neglect as they squeeze to the far end of the car. 125, 135, 145. The door opens up and on walks the most elegant regal couple. It is a grandmother with white gloves and a pillbox hat in pastel and her little granddaughter also with white gloves and in pastel. And everyone cringes. Because the obvious, the, you know, assault of the elegant regal couple. Hey, do you want to sit with me? The grandmother and the granddaughter look at each other in the eye, nod, and then march right over and sit down immediately next to him, touching on the hip. And he's stunned. And the man says, do you want some of my lunch? Again, the grandmother and granddaughter look at each other in the eye, nod, look back out, no, thank you. Almost in unison. And they sat with him as if they were sitting with someone at a lunch table. They sat graciously. What went through my mind was this is Sunday. They are dressed so beautifully. They perhaps are off to church. And within the language of perhaps their faith tradition, what echoed through my ears was what you do to the least of these you do to me. It echoed through my ears because nothing had been said between grandma and granddaughter. They looked at each other and nodded. So grandma had already taught those words and grandma had already lived those words. If you will, she talked the walk and walked the walk. It was the intergenerational transmission of spiritual values that I was witnessing. They exactly, in that moment, grandmother and granddaughter knew just what page we're on. That is who we are as parents or grandparents. We are the torchbearers. Of course, we don't make the light, but we pass it. And the torch was passed in that moment. And I would venture to infer in dozens, if not hundreds of moments before that, where a grandmother enacted spiritual values. That is who we are. It is the most important thing we do for our kids. If it's the most important thing we do for our kids, what advice do you have to all the parents and grandparents and 
who have kids who want to pass that on. Yes. What, what does that look like? What, where should we start if we haven't started? The patterns through the lens of science say that grandma that day had the answer. We need to walk the walk and talk the walk. And to fill that out a bit more, what is that in our daily lives? Well, talking the walk is transparency. It is being forthright and open in our own spiritual journey. It is praying out loud and meditating side by side. It is saying, I remember when I was a sophomore and I didn't know if there was any meaning in life. And I really, truly in my heart felt terrified and empty in this horrible existential darkness. But then you know what happened in my life? That summer down by the Gulf of Mexico, I saw light on the water and I knew that God is with us. And I knew there is a meaning written into life. And no, I hadn't been taught that in school, but I knew it far more deeply in my direct knowing. It's running a narrative. And when we do that, what we do is we tell our children, this is real. This is absolutely real. It has a name, it has a language, and it is yours. That is how they myelinate the tracks. That is how they pave the highways into their innate gift of spiritual awareness. The second piece next to talking the walk is walking the walk. And we don't have to be perfect, but day in, day out, living out our spiritual values. There's nothing that a teen smells more pungently than hypocrisy, right? <laughs> <laughs> so a teen will say something. Why is it that at our house of worship, they don't have the teachers and the shamans by the door, but the wealthy people who gave money at the door on the special occasions, you know, they'll, they'll hit it. So when the walking isn't squaring with the talking, we need to fix it, right? And that is a fixing both at the relational level and at the spiritual level. I'll give you an example. I'm three kids in the car driving around and it is a beautiful day. We're off to the beach and I can't believe how fortunate I am that this is a Saturday. So no one has to go to school with found time and we're off to the beach. We get to the beach. They're running around. They're laughing. But all I can think about is this, this sort of bee in my bonnet about work and what someone said to me and what it means for the project and is it going to move ahead and is this guy in my way? I'm ruminating about work. So I'm actually not there at the beach on this beautiful day. And my kids say, mom, what are you thinking? Mom, what are you thinking? Why, are your, why is your head all scrunched up? What's on your mind? And they know, of course. So at the end of the day, we're back in the car, we go home and I realize I really blew it. And I said, you know, I want to apologize to you because today was a beautiful day and I feel like in some ways I kind of squandered it. So could I apologize to you first and foremost for not really being there because today was a gift and really you are the most important thing in my life. And then part two, that's the relational piece. Will you join me? Here's the spiritual piece. As I'd like to say a prayer or do a gratitude ritual or make a meditation or read a poem through which I apologize to life itself. I apologize to God and might be renewed as a mother and us as a family because today was a gift from God or of life or of spirit and I squandered it. And in that way, they learn that everything can be fixed at two levels, at the relational level and at the transcendent, the sacred level. Because life throws real curves. Families have to be reconstituted. People make mistakes. There's betrayals. There's losses. This all needs to be fixed 
both at the relational and the spiritual level. What I have seen as a clinical psychologist is that when both levels are fixed, when we bring an awakened awareness, a spiritual heart to a loss, to a betrayal, there is an opening of possibility. There's a profound rearrangement of meaning that is beyond what might have been imagined. But if the spiritual level is left out, fixing it relationally is only about 30%, 35% at most of the deal. I have young adults come to me all the time with old trauma in their backpack that's been fixed at the level of mainstream psychotherapy, but has not been fixed at the level of the spiritual heart. And they have still, from trauma, spiritual injury. They are aware that there was a time in their life where they felt closer to God, where they were more able to perceive the deeper nature of life, where they felt a more awakened sense of connection. Both need to happen. And we teach that as parents with our daily blunders. And does the same apply to younger kids? For example, we have a four and a half year old and a two year old, be honest with them, same sort of process. In, in a way that is a language that is authentic to you, that is right from your heart, they a hundred percent will understand. The young child is, comes a knower. Day one, he or she is a knower. They are inherently spiritual. And science has looked at this. Science has noticed that when parents bring spiritual language forward and honor their children's spiritual questions, the whole family, the whole thing heats up in the family and children are more forthcoming in their natural awareness. They are more likely to tell us. And, and as simple, could it be as simple as before bedtime, talking about what we're grateful for, doing some sort of prayer, maybe a meditation, as simple as that? Yes. And the only thing I would add is that as long as it's consistent and honest and a real sharing, a transparency of who we are as parents, it is very helpful to say we are grateful to whom? Is it God? Is it that if there is a capacity that feels alive and well in the parent to share a transcendent relationship, it is really that transcendent relationship that is the most protective and foundational to development in childhood and adolescence. Got it. And so going back to adolescence, there was another jaw-dropping moment in the book, and it was a study from, I'll probably butcher her name, but Dr. Sonia Luthar, if I yes. am close on so, that. Yeah, Dr. Around, Sonia Luthar. Uh, yes. Around upper middle class teens. So can you share some nuggets from that? So Dr. Luthar, who's a very good friend and colleague of mine, spent decades looking at children in poverty and seeing how much they struggled. And really, I think she said, did it mainly as a control group. She initially set out to look at the rates of depression and addiction and anxiety, not only in children in under-resourced communities, but also as she moved along in children and adolescents in highly resourced communities. So she looked in Marin and she looked outside of New York and she looked in communities, high schools, where children had just about anything materially they might want and the parents were very committed and there was a great deal of energy and care given to children. So it was absolutely jaw-dropping to the field that Dr. Luther discovered in these well-resourced communities, there were actually higher rates of addiction, higher rates of depression, higher rates of sociopathy than in the inner city. So Dr. Luther looked under the hood and what she found was quite remarkable, that there was a sense of contingent love 
in children. They felt in a sense they had to sing for their supper. They were as adored, they were as, as cherished as their last win. And why was this? Because dad comes to the ball game, but never comes to dinner. That the family never sits down to pray, but rather is racing around all day to get the right SAT tutor and the right travel soccer game. And that instrumentality and outward success is where the energy and affection is. So I teamed up with Dr. Luther and I said, you know, we, we see these findings from national samples that spirituality is profoundly protective against precisely these diseases of despair. Let's put our heads together. And what we found, well, let me put it this way. Can we play a little game? Okay. Sure. I'm going to invite your community to just imagine 70% of young adults of teenagers in the United States, 70% say my personal spirituality is highly important to me. So just as a moment's reflection, what might we envision is the percent of teens in highly resourced communities that say my personal spirituality is highly important to me. Write it down. It turns out that it is 15, one five, less wow. than a quarter of the national rate. So then we then ask the question naturally, well, how do I get my child into that 15%? And it turned out that almost without exception, the 15% who had a strong spirituality had parents who together side by side brought them to a faith community or a community of active contribution, love of neighbor, altruism, habitat for humanity. But through some form of giving, through being in a community, oftentimes a faith community, no matter what denomination, where whether dad just made $5 million or dad just stole $5 million is in jail, is on the front page, you are looked at with love. There's a sense that you are a soul on earth and children came to know each other as being more than their parts and pieces, more than their last win. Children came to know adults as fallible. And yet in sharing through witness and stories of personal renewal, of forgiveness, of fixing it relationally and spiritually, children got high pixel information. In a meaningful story, you get six months, maybe six years of life condensed. And these children had deepened their spiritual core. They knew themselves and they knew one another as beings of infinite worth, as souls on earth, as children of God. They were different. And they did not identify with whether or not they made travel soccer or whether or not they were cut from varsity tennis or whether or not they got into UCLA or didn't get into any college at all. They were doing much better. Clearly, there are significant mental health benefits for children for teens, for adults, Sh should every school be thinking about how they incorporate spirituality? Should every psychotherapist or psychiatrist be thinking about how they incorporate spirituality in their, into their practice? Because reading your book and, and your book is filled with so much data. We could spend hours on all the data. We're, we're pulling out some of the most astounding numbers and anect powerful anecdotes, but like, it's kind of a no brainer that w it seems like we're, we should be prescribing less SSRIs and SSRIs save lives, but, and spirituality should come to the forefront. The data is very compelling. Very often depression is literally a knock on the door. It is an invitation for a deepening of spiritual life. If we saw 
that in people to recover from deep depression through spiritual deepening, through awakening, they gave off a wavelength off the back of their head called high amplitude alpha. Literally, we put an EEG machine on, we strapped it on their head. These people who recovered from depression by saying, what is life showing me now? What deeper might be found? Okay, this, you know, I wanted to marry him so much and it was A plus B plus C and he'd engaged and it was all, we were engaged, it was all set up and then it fell apart. Or, you know, I did everything. I lined up, I got straight A's, I had a bunch of APs and I did not get into UCLA. That red door that was so in the bag, it was stuck, it was jammed. But because the red door was stuck, a spiritual response to loss, to disappointment, is I pivoted. And I saw what I would have charged right by, never noticed before. I saw a bright yellow door, wide open. And only because life said no red door for you, I pivoted, I walked through the yellow door, and that's how I met the man I really love. And that's how I found this job that I didn't even know was part of a field. And that's how dot, dot, dot. A spiritual response to suffering augments our field of perception and allows the right thing to pop. Wow, 120 degree shift, there's a yellow door. A spiritual response to suffering allows us to feel that we are guided, that we are held, that we are loved and that we are never alone. And each of those dimensions of this universal birthright, this experience has a circuit in the awakened brain. There's a neural circuit for each of those. This is, we are built to hit go and be able to see this. So yes, depression is the opportunity of the lifetime to stop hitting our head against the red door and engage the fuller nature of life. And in fact, I would even say that in many cases, suffering has to do with isolating ourselves from the field of life, this splintered, narrow world in which we gouge out our eyes and we don't even perceive that we're part of this loving, guiding universe in and through us, this spirit that says, hey, yellow door, this is for you. When we conduct a therapy that is backwards looking, we have very limited information and many therapies are. I can only look at my shoulder over it back. That is a retrospective set of information. But there is infinite information when we can receive this high pixel, intuitive, mystical, direct awareness of awakened awareness by saying, what is life showing me now? Wow. Yellow door. Wow. Of all people on earth, I met you today, not five years ago, not five days ago, but today. And you said what to me? The answer to my heart's question. This is a living dialogue with life that is awakened. When we use suffering to cast open the door and hit deeper ground, hit deeper bedrock by waking up to, to the deeper nature of life. This is what every therapy needs to include because the vast majority of people in Western culture have a very strong tricep, right? They're very good at what I call achieving awareness tactics. I know what I want and how to get it. But achieving awareness does not square with the deeper dynamism, the flux, what we just saw in the past 18 months of life, the unpredictable, even the unwanted. And where we can no longer control things, where we have a little thin icing of control on a deep pound cake of flux, that's where we need to shift, pivot, open our awakened awareness, see the yellow doors, and realize that life is far more full of promise and magnificent surprise 
than we could have even imagined looking over our back shoulder. Beautifully said. Those yellow doors make me think of synchronicity, something you also go deep on. Can you talk about synchronicity? Synchronicity is when two events, which are perhaps tangibly, physically, mechanistically unrelated, actually reveal themselves to be expressions of one deeper truth. And we've all had these moments. For instance, I'm thinking of my friend. I miss her so much. I feel actually a little guilty because I haven't been a good correspondent. The whole way home on the subway, I'm wondering, was I a good friend? Sure enough, turn the key, walk in the door, hit the machine, and the first message. So glad to hear from her because on that voice message is the answer to my thought. Another example, I share in the book a very long journey that I took in search of our children. It was an unbelievably painful journey, and it was a journey riddled with depression. We had countless infertility treatments that didn't work. We went from you know, IUIs to IVFs to ratcheting it up. Let's go find the IVF team that invented in vitro. Okay, let's ratchet up even more. Let's go fly to the other side of the country to find the IVF team that has the highest rates. None of it worked. And with every failed in vitro, I felt like my child had died. This went on for five years. It was, we were devastated and my husband was gutted. We had everything we wanted in terms of our jobs, in terms of our way of life. This was the only thing that mattered and we couldn't control it. And yet, as I became less egotistical about having and getting what I wanted, about I want a child that is, has my nose, that has his personality, that has his brain, you know, mail order, achieving awareness. I started noticing a lot of helpers and healers on the path, a lot. And they ranged from everyone, well, the foremost was my mother called me one day and had really confined her to the mother's zone. I don't want to talk about infertility. I don't want to hear your frustrations about not having a grandchild. I'd had the very painful experience actually of being home at my mother's house, opening the closet in the guest room. I mean, to this day, it's, it moves me. And there were probably a dozen little baby outfits all hanging, waiting for this grandchild who after five years still had not come. So I felt inadequate, but I also felt tragically empty. I felt like in these moments, I think I discovered what sin is. I think sin is a shortcut of not owning our path. I thought, well, there's nothing biologically wrong. Maybe I could, just a passing thought, would never do it, but it did flicker through my mind. Maybe I could find like at a bar, someone that looks like my husband and conceive a child. It wouldn't do it, but it did cross my mind. Sin, I think, is the tricky back door. But I stuck with the road. I stuck with the real road. No baby. And then one day my mother calls and she says, I just want you to know something. She had been working for her faith community as a volunteer. And she said, I have to confess, normally when people don't pull their weight, I get a little agitated. But I started to get annoyed that this woman I was working with wasn't helping with the upcoming event. And then she confided in me that she's adopting a little baby. And then I met him. We'll call him little um, John David. And he's precious. And little John David, he's from Russia. And he's adorable and he laughs and he loves his mom. I just wanted you to know that. 
just wanted you to know that meant, had you ever thought of adopting? And then my husband, this really, these constant eye interventions, he said, this is starting to feel to me, for us, in our case, like Frankenstein. My husband speaks in hyperbole. He's like, I can't stand this anymore. He said, there's a child out there for us. I said, well, come on, one more, one more. I felt in this achieving awareness on the treadmill, almost as if it were some type of advancement or job promotion. We've got to get it. We've got to get it. It was an attachment. One more. So there we are in solidarity after yet one more in vitro. Of course, we'd found the team that at the highest rate, they'd invented this process on sea urchins and Woods Hole. This was the team. And I knew in my deep heart, in my inner wisdom, in my deeper level of knowing that I was in the wrong place, that this was a good team. This was where someone else should come for their in vitro. But for me and in our path, I was in the wrong place. I just knew it. And I knew it wasn't going to take. But nonetheless, I went through the motions. I took the shots. I had the procedure. We're lying on the bed side by side in a very nice hotel in Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia. This was a team at Penn. And that day on the TV, at this nice hotel, there was one, one station. And I hit the remote and the TV was stuck. And curiously, at a nice hotel, that one station was showing a interminable documentary on street kids. And they pan into this little boy, showing him standing on a garbage dump in Brazil. And through the translator, the boy says, I don't care that I live in a garbage dump. I don't care, so moving to this day, that I can't go to school. But it hurts so much to not be loved that I sniff glue to make the pain go away. And there I was on the umpteenth in vitro, and I realized how misguided I had been. I thought, oh my, I actually felt foolish. I could have been his mother. He's standing there alone in pain because he's not loved. And I'm sitting here in our fancy hotel wailing over the fact that these in vitros aren't taking. We could have been mother and child. And we would have both been loved. And we would have, in that moment, it occurred to me, been a family, which is based on love and commitment. So everything shifted once we had that realization. That was perhaps the most profound, that was perhaps the only interminable documentary that would have turned the tide at that moment. That was a synchronicity. Yes, there is not a mechanistic relationship between the stuck remote and the hotel at Rittenhouse Square and the interminable documentary and my in vitro and our not being parent, but there is a deep, unitive, clear, singular event there. Far too improbabilistic to have happened by chance are these events. They all are expressions of one event, which is our loving, guiding universe showing us the yellow door, showing us possibility beyond what we might ever have imagined that is far more shining and far more right for us. And that was the opening of our yellow door to find our son, Isaiah. And there were many, many more synchronicities lining the path. Very moving. I I think you're hitting on something that I struggle with. I think many people struggle with. It's balancing surrender, letting go, and achievement, goal settings, 
we work hard. You wrote a book, you're a PhD. I'm an entrepreneur. I've got 50 employees. <laughs> so it's like and a lot of our listeners, there's nothing wrong with being ambitious and, and working hard and having goals. And I, I always struggle with that. And here's the thing I want and let's go. I'm an ex athlete and let's do it. And then there's the balance of, I need to, to let go. I need to surrender. How do, how do you think about that balance? And I might resonate in by saying there's the capability of the head, the strategy, the implementation, the rollout, the building, the enterprise that you build so powerfully and skillfully. And then there's the choice of what to build, the why of it, the purpose of it, the knowing of the heart, our deep inner compass that tells us what direction truly is our path and what truly holds deep value, real value, inherent value in our choices. In most traditions, the knowing of the heart guides us and the head lays out the path, the strategy, the rollout. We have it absolutely upside down and backwards in mainstream Western culture where the head makes big decisions. I mean, are you kidding me? Right? So no wonder we've had such suffering. No wonder we've made such hideous mistakes and damaged people's lives all around the world, right? The heart is the instrument of deep revelation and the head is our gift of implementation. We need both, but we got to get the order right. Heart tells head, go do this fabulously. What do you do when you find yourself leading with the head? And not the heart, because you can easily go there. You start, you start working, you start going, Dr. Google, whatever it may be, the head starts to take over. What do you do when you're, when you catch yourself leading with the head? How do you get back to, okay, I need to stop here, lead with the heart. When I'm stuck in the head to the expense of the heart, I have symptoms, literally symptoms. One, I ruminate. I've got to get it done. I've got to get it done. Mom, will you come here? Honey, could you make dinner? No one else is in the room. Right. I got to get it done. I got to get it done. Another symptom. I find myself getting anxious and stressed. I'm out of balance. And I have now had this happen enough times that I see the red light blinking. Ah, I'm spinning in my head. I'm anxious. I'm ignoring the needs of everyone else. I think I'm a little stuck in my head right now. Right. And I have the opportunity to then walk outside, engage in a moment of deep reflection, prayer, for me, dear God, please bring me back into alignment. Please work through me to serve you in love. That's what I say to myself. And then suddenly I'm back here guided by my heart. But there's a trigger like, there, you know, hey, I'm aware. And, you know, I, I, I view this as a life's journey, that there's always an opportunity to deepen the connection, to listen more to the heart. I don't think that, oh, I'm an aficionado or, oh, I stink at this. It's a journey. It's a process. Oh, in this moment here now, how might I bring forward my heart? In closing, you hit on the fact that we're missing the connection we, we, we desperately need to each other, to something bigger than ourselves. And there's a disconnect. And it, how can we experience what you call awakened? connection. What's the takeaway for everyone listening? Again, we love takeaways to go out in the world and have awakened connections. I think it's so critical for where we are in the world right now in 21. 
would you allow me to perhaps share a practice? Absolutely. Okay. I'm going to invite five breaths to clear out our inner space. And then we're going to do a brief 90-second visualization. I invite you to set before you a table. This is your table. And to your table, you may invite anyone, living or deceased, who truly has your best interest in mind. Anyone living or deceased who truly has your best interest in mind. And with them all sitting there, ask them if they love you. And now you may invite your higher self, the part of you that's so much more than anything you have or don't have, anything you've done or not done, your true, eternal, higher self, and ask you if you love you. And now finally, you may invite your higher power. Whatever words you may use, however you may know, your higher power, and ask your higher power if they love you. And now with all of those people sitting there right now, what do they need to tell you? What do they need to share? What do you need to know right now? And when you're ready, I invite you back. This is your counsel. They are always there for you. And who shows up may change depending on where we are in our road of life. And what we ask them can change. But they are there whether we witness or not. Their loving, holding, guiding presence. We are never alone. And they're right there awaiting while we awaken to them. Lisa, thank you so much. It's an honor. <laughs>